0: I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Sammy Youssef. Sammy is a recent psychology PhD graduate of Yale University and soon to be a MindCore postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an expert on spatial cognition, which we're going to be talking about today. Sammy, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time. So spatial cognition is something I think most of us have an intuitive understanding of, but I'm, I'm wondering how it's defined from a scientific perspective.
1: Uh, I guess it's defined very broadly. I mean, spatial cognition could refer to any number of things. I think traditionally in the field of psychology or cognitive science, when we think about spatial cognition, at least for me, it sort of evokes an image of like a cognitive map. We're thinking about how humans navigate in the world or how Uh, especially a lot of early work is is based on animal behavior, how animals navigate in the world. Um, For me, though, I think about it as as being much more broad than that. Um, So spatial cognition to me isn't just about a sort of large-scale cognitive map you have of the environment, but it's also about everything that your visual system is doing to perceive the locations of things and the sizes of things and the orientations of things. Um, So when I think about spatial cognition, it encompasses everything from vision to action, um, how you see how big uh, a dot is on your screen and also how you know to reach out for your coffee mug on your desk, um, as well as all those things um, that we would traditionally think about in terms of navigation or something like this. A particular interest to me is uh, to what extent all of those things are the same thing. Um, so sort of uh, there could be sort of common structures, common biases underlying how you perceive space and also how you navigate through it. Or maybe not, um, but that's kind of what my work looks at. And I think um, it's very important to have a holistic view of spatial representation um, because otherwise we might miss similarities across these uh, different areas of study. Mm-hmm.
0: So, how much of it do you think is conscious versus unconscious processing? Because there's the type of recognizing the, the space around you and mapping it out that's conscious, and then there's sort of the very fast perception that ha- might happen unconsciously.
1: Well, I think this is sort of a domain where naturally the answer is gonna be a bit of both, um, but in spatial cognition, perhaps more so than other areas of cognitive science and psychology, that a little bit of both is, is more interesting uh, than it could otherwise be, right? This isn't like a, a cop-out answer. It's actually a substantive right. one. I think, I hope I'll try to convince you that it is. So um, obviously any organism that perceives space or, or navigates through space has to have some sense of spatial representation, right? Um, organisms like ants, for instance, um, are very simple and they have a very simple set of behaviors. And so we can study how they navigate. And we learn a lot about the very limited way that they can find their way, let's say in a desert where there's not any landmarks or anything like this. Um, that I would think of as relatively unconscious, that kind of wayfinding we do as humans. Um, and it's mostly implicit, you know, you can navigate a unfamiliar city and you can do Well, some people can do an okay job of kind of having a sense of where they are and where they need to go. Um, and I, I don't think that's very conscious at the same time. Um, I think a lot of humans success as a species has to do with their ability to grapple with space in multiple ways and represent space in multiple ways and represent other information in a spatial way. And I think that requires more than just one kind of spatial representation, for instance, if you think about a city that you're familiar with, um, you can have a representation of that city in terms of your own intuitive sense of where things are. You can think about you know, from wherever you are on a college campus, where's your favorite coffee shop? Probably at any point on your campus, you could probably point you know, somewhere and say it's roughly in that direction and it's roughly you know, some distance away. That, that I think is pretty intuitive. But you could also have a sense of the spatial layout in terms of explicit street names or explicit landmarks. Um, We might say that you have sort of a propositional representation of space that's really based on sort of explicit knowledge that you have of the environment. My view in general is that um, space is really unique and that we're building cognitive maps that quite literally have, you know, explicit propositional knowledge built on top of sort of a more implicit, maybe coordinate-based sort of map of space. I think this is really, um, we don't know a lot about this. in terms of what neuroscience is studying mostly, they're looking at things closer to like coordinate systems. And what psychologists have been looking at is sometimes coordinate systems, but also sometimes this more high-level propositional stuff. I think the answer is inevitably somewhere in between, um, mm-hmm. that it's really layers of representation stacked on top of each other. And I think that's what contributes to the flexibility of behavior that humans have that many other species uh, don't quite have.
0: huh. So is the propositional layering kind of more similar to having a bunch of features or descriptors that you're, that you store in your mind and then you project it onto the real world as opposed to kind of simulating an image of the world in your mind and then describing it.
1: Um, I'm not sure. I think, um, when I think about what it means to have a propositional representation, um, I think it's one where, um, you know, I have some explicit knowledge that like, let's say, Elm Street comes after Church Street or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really just thinking about the order of those things. There's no, there's no visual imagery involved. It's just right. purely like I'm, I'm sort of formulating a very simplified cognitive map where I think about, you know, this mm-hmm. thing comes after this thing comes after this thing, this thing is roughly perpendicular to this other thing. Um, one of the key signatures, I don't know if this helps at all, but one of the key signatures, I think, of a sort of propositional Type representation is that people tend to represent all angles as 90 degree angles and if you think about it in a propositional way it makes sense right you're either turning left or you're turning right it doesn't matter the degree Mm -hmm. to which you're turning left or right Um, you're sort of storing the explicit knowledge that there was a left turn or a right turn and I think Mm -hmm. that um, you can imagine a simplified cognitive map forming in your mind that just has this like you know straight left right sort Mm -hmm. of this thing after that thing kind of form. And I think um, it's kind of cool to think about how that would interface with a, a more coordinate based representation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's, it seems like we encode this information directly as information like A be- comes before B. It's not like we have to have a middleman of closing our eyes and imagining the scene and then figuring out a, like almost from scratch that whatever street becomes before the next street.
1: No, I think a a very provocative idea actually is that um, despite the fact that we may be tempted to think about um, spatial representations as being very visual in nature or imagistic, um, there's actually some really great work suggesting that um, people who are aphantasic, who have have no um, visual imagery at all, have just as good spatial memory um, Mm -hmm. when they're shown scenes and asked to sort of draw what they uh, remembered in those scenes. Aphantasics will be worse at drawing the scenes. Uh, they'll remember less detail, but they'll still remember the spatial layout in, in just as pristine a way. That's a pretty profound um, finding to me. It's a very recent uh, work. And uh, it's relatable because I am aphantasic. I have no mental injury whatsoever, but I would yeah. like to think that I have really uh, good spatial memory. I always have a very strong sense of the layout of things. I'm good at navigating. Uh, so it's a very intuitive finding to me. And it suggests um, this idea that I think is not obvious to many people that spatial memory um, and even certain kinds of spatial imagery uh, can exist even in the absence of any sort of visual detail.
0: Mm-hmm. Does this aphantasia apply to all sorts of imagery or only like uh, spatial sorts? Like, could you close your eyes and imagine a person?
1: Or Are you asking about my own limited imagery or are you asking about like, um, like Your own
0: or, um, or aphantasia more generally.
1: I think a canonical sort of example uh, uh, for people that are studying Aphantasia in general would be like, you can ask yourself like to imagine an apple Mm -hmm. in your mind. And and what do you see? And the typical way this is studied is you show people six images and the most grainy image would just be like a vague outline of an apple. Mm -hmm. And then the most detailed image would be one that has depth and lighting. And you can really see this vibrant red of the apple. Mm -hmm. um, And there's texture that you can perceive. Um, and, uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of variation in this. It's, it's quite shocking. Um, people often don't realize that while they might think it's definitely the high, high def Apple, other people are saying it's just this like vague outline type thing.
2: Uh Um,
1: uh, so I I wish I, you know, this is a podcast, so I can't, I can't show the scale, Uh, but it's often quite shocking to people that other people could even be at any other place in that Uh scale. For Uh me, um, if I try to think of an Apple, um, it's like. An outline almost, or to give a more extreme example that I think people um, find surprising. Uh, I see my mother all the time, but I cannot imagine her face as I'm sitting here talking now. That's the extreme wow. uh,
0: of it for me. Mm-hmm. So I've wondered if in animals, I, I tend to assume this assumption very well might be wrong that animal cognition might be more imagistic and then maybe as humans evolves language, we started thinking more propositionally. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I don't know anything about imagery in other animals. Although I would I would take, there's sort of an intermediate view. It's not just um, imagery or, or propositional representations. There's something in between, I think, which is um, something like a coordinate representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, I mentioned uh, ant navigation uh, just a moment ago Ants navigate pretty well in very limited environments. And um, there's some evidence that ants use something that resembles polar coordinates to navigate in space. I don't think that's imagistic um, at all. Um, There's there's certain, I don't think anyone would think that the ants are using mental imagery to navigate home, especially given the kinds of errors they make suggest that they don't. Um, But at the same time, it's not propositional. I don't think the ant is saying to themselves Oh, I need to go this far. Instead, it's some other path. You have some other representation of angle and distance that they calculate in some other way. And I would say my broad uh, guess is that most animals are relying neither on imagery nor propositional representations, but instead some highly specific spatial representations uh, uh-huh. to have a sense of their surroundings.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. No matter which way you look at it, because if it if it is the case that animals are more imagistic and then we evolved sort of away from that, then that says something cool about ourselves. If it's the case that um, that maybe at all levels of the evolutionary ladder, like even in ants, that uh, that they're not working imagistically, that that points towards something unique about animal cognition. Anyway, I know that's that's quite strayed from your own research, so we could um, pull back towards. Um, stuff you're, you're more familiar with. Um, You want to talk about some of your PhD research?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the research that I've done um, during my PhD is quite broad, but I think um, the primary theme of it is, is very consistent. Um, Fundamentally what I care about is understanding the primitive, representations of things, and mostly in the context of spatial representation. So let me just give a few examples just to give you a sense Mm -hmm. of scope here. Um, Prior to um, beginning my PhD, I had done some work on shape representation. And this I just think is a really exciting problem in the sense that it um, is, uh, the answer to this question is inspired um, both by mathematics um, and computer science, and also, actual psychology vision research. Um, but basically, here's the problem um, you recognize objects out in the world, um, and you have no trouble seeing that um, some particular dresser is the same dresser viewed from a different angle, or something like this, or some other objects with odd shapes are the same objects um, viewed from a different angle. And so, there's a pretty fundamental mystery in vision science, which is how do you how do you know that that object is the same object? Um, there's lots of different views on this, but one provocative idea is that you represent this object by its shape skeleton. I won't go into the details here. Basically, the idea of a shape skeleton is that if you think about like a human skeleton, right, it's kind of like an outline of of what uh, the shape of a human would be. And if you think about the skeleton of a human versus a uh, uh, rhinoceros, those are going to be different shape skeletons. Um, and you can tell a lot about the full form. Uh, just from the sort of minimalistic descriptor that is the skeleton, and essentially there's an idea that we represent shapes in a similar way. The point is um, that's sort of a low-dimensional representation of that shape, and I'm thinking about spatial representation more broadly in a very similar way. So here's another simple problem: you see a cube on a desk. How big is that cube? How do you know how big that cube is? What is what is your visual system taking away from that object? I think there's an intuitive view that's accepted by most people, and honestly, most psychologists and vision scientists, that you're roughly perceiving the size of that cube veridically. Um, In other words, you can tell that it's however large it is. Um, But actually, I think the answer is is surprisingly unintuitive. Um, In some of my work, I've argued, for instance, that what the visual system is doing to calculate the size of a cube isn't length times width times height. But instead is something closer to length plus width times height. Um, so the idea there is that visual system is using some sort of rule, rule or heuristic to perceive how large something is, and then maybe to represent how large something is. And that seems like a really um, simple solution to a complex problem, and in many ways it is, but it does a surprisingly good job of capturing human behavior. Um, and then in other work I'm interested in, you know, things occupy places in space, how, to, how where is it, how does the mind know where something is? And we start with this sort of question about whether we use any sort of coordinate representation to represent where things are in space. Um, so for example, most people remember from high school math classes, a contrast between Cartesian coordinates like X, Y dimensions and polar coordinates, um, which are sort of like angle distance dimensions. And there's sort of a straightforward question about which of those sort of two dimensional systems supports Um, how people represent where things are in space. And so what's common across all the examples I just gave is that there's something that's a a higher dimensional figure out in the world, and the mind has to format that in some lower dimensional way. And the question is, what do those representational primitives look like? And those are the kinds of questions that fascinate me. Given that interest, spatial cognition is a very natural thing to study because uh, space is full of these kind of problems where we can reduce them into a lower dimensionality. Uh That's what gets me excited, and that's what I try to ask questions about.
0: Right. So it's like the world out there is super big and complex. And in order for our brains to process that efficiently, we have to make all these sort of shortcuts.
1: Yeah. In order to fit all that in memory as well, uh, you Mm -hmm. couldn't you couldn't have a vertical representation of the location and the size and the orientation of everything that's out there, as well as its detailed um, spatial structure. So Mm -hmm. you need something lower dimensional. And that's what I'm trying to get at.
0: Yeah. So there are some very big philosophical questions that uh, seem to underpin your work, which is like, when we're using these mental heuristics, are we perceiving like the real world, whatever that is supposed to be? Or are we kind of just constructing this idea of what things are that isn't necessarily true?
1: I think that's right. I mean, to the extent that you would say that about space, I mean, I think it 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 would shock a lot of people to think that like everything that they're perceiving at all times is sort of distorted in that way. Um, but that's really kind of the truth. Um, mm-hmm. Even, even this, like I said, the size of a cube is distorted in this really systematic way that I think people don't realize. Here's a really simple example that people may be familiar with. At least this is an experience that I have very often. Um, if I'm thinking about how, how many potatoes to cut up when I'm making breakfast, for instance, um, I look at, you know, one potato and I think this isn't enough. I need three more. And then I start chopping that one potato and I see it in all of its smaller pieces. And I'm kind of shocked how much potato that was relative to how much I thought it was a moment ago. That I idea falls perfectly out of this other idea of volume that I was saying a moment ago. That's the illusion of volume that I've shown in my work. Um, and it's really powerful. It's like, at least to me, it continues to shock me every time, despite the fact that I study this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the few occasions where you get insight into how your visual system works. Uh, sort of uh, betrayed you. Um, and I think that's happening all the time. We just don't see it in front of mm-hmm. our faces so
0: clearly. Right. So, and how does that work when you have, so on one hand, there's sort of these shortcuts that you're taking that give us a maybe a false perception of reality. And then on the other hand, we have multiple senses. So we have sort of this convergent validity where it's like, maybe your eyes might be off in perceiving um, the volume of something, but then you feel it and that sort of reinforces what your eyes are seeing, if if that makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, these cross modal questions are very interesting, although they're, they're very difficult to study. Um, I would say that uh, you would think that the mind is sort of adapted to integrate information across modalities in that very straightforward way, but it isn't obvious how the mind should solve that problem Mm -hmm. because it sort of depends on some inference that you make about density. And, um, I don't think the mind has anything built into it. That's telling it based on visual information, how dense something should be. Does that make sense? And so if you pick up something and you feel it's weight, um, for instance, um, it isn't clear if that's because of the size of it or the density of it. And I think it's hard for, for, for the mind to solve those problems. Um, this results in a number of very, very intriguing, um, size weight illusions, um, that Mm -hmm. are very powerful demos that people could experience for themselves. Again, this is a podcast, so I can't I can't right. have people feel what I want them to feel. Um, but there's some really powerful demos out there that are quite compelling. And I think it, it arises from this inability to integrate this information like we would expect we might be able to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess the podcast is uh, a simulation of aphasia because we're talking about all these spatial ideas and we can't imagine them. We can only talk about them propositionally.
1: Yeah. So some, some, of, some of the listeners will... Have a good sense of some of these things, and others will be completely clueless.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how did you first um, become interested in these problems or in psychology more generally?
1: Well, in psychology more generally, that's a different answer. Uh, I think in psychology more generally, um, I think this is true for many people. I became a psychology major. Well, one just because I thought it was fascinating. Um, I wanted to know how people work. I was really obsessed with trying to understand people and understand myself and when I took a psychology course in uh, high school, that was sort of the first uh, time I had terminology to describe things I was observing. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to become a psychology major because I was interested in that. But also I had this fake thought that I wanted to help people. Um, I think a lot of people actually get started in psychology majors for that reason. They wanna be a counselor or a therapist of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, I got my fix for that kind of work um, as an undergrad. I volunteered as like a crisis um, hotline operator in the evenings uh, for throughout my undergraduate career. And I love that work. And I think it's important work. I think it's underappreciated undervalued. Um, but I decided that it wasn't going to satisfy my broader intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that really got me interested in the kind of research that I'm doing now is um, a random guest lecture That I witnessed in a class I was taking on uh, non-human primate behavior that was taught by a graduate student um, at Emory, Mm. my alma mater. Um, And this guest lecture was about the mental number line of non-human primates. And basically the point of the lecture was that um, non-human primates, like humans, may have a sort of mental number line. The idea of a mental Mm. number line is that you represent magnitude in space. So for example, um, at least most Western, uh, individuals will represent lower values or lower numbers or lower magnitudes on the left side of space and higher magnitudes or higher values on the right side of space. Um, and it's actually very easy to study this. Mm -hmm. And, um, I first heard about that finding and it blew my mind because, um, I always was interested in numbers and math as a kid. I was the kind of kid who would do math problems for fun. That was from the time I was three or four until high school. Mm -hmm. I really loved math and numbers and it was always deeply spatial to me. Uh It was always fundamentally spatial to me. That's how I thought about math and in sort of competitive math tournaments, I always liked spatial solutions to algebraic problems. That's kind of how I thought about numbers. And so when I learned about this mental number line idea, it just really shocked me. It was like this idea that I had that numbers were spatial, that had been such an important part. As I said, I spent a lot of time around math and numbers. Mm-hmm. It was such an important part of how I thought about the world, really. And the fact that it was true, it felt like revealing some truth that I'd felt for all these years. Um, and that it was discernible through this very simple, very clever paradigm. And this is really, um, for those that aren't familiar, I think this is called the SNARK effect, Spatial Numerical Association of Response Codes. It's one of the most pristine, elegant examples of of cognitive psychology at its best. I found that extraordinarily inspiring. I immediately reached out to the guest lecturer and looked at um, getting involved in labs that studied this sort of thing. and uh, And that happened shortly afterwards. A month mm-hmm. later, I started working in a lab that studied exactly this sort of thing. And I loved it. And everything else in my research career has been a pretty consistent trajectory since then. Mm-hmm.
0: What is the paradigm like? How are you looking at Uh, numerical cognition in primates?
1: Um, So I don't remember what the exact paradigm was in in non-human primates, but I'll tell you what the paradigm is um, for humans. And the non-human primate version uh, was very similar. But basically um, the classic task, um, 30 years old at this point, is called a parity judgment task. In it, what will happen is you'll see on the screen, in the center of the screen, the digits one through nine. And on each trial, you'll just, you know, digital flash every second, let's say, you'll just have to indicate whether the digit was odd or even. Mm -hmm. Um, For some of the trials, you'll press a button on the left if it's odd and a button on the right if it's even.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But for some other trials, you'll press, um, uh, let's say it'll be even on the left and odd on the right.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And what they study is your difference in response time for the number one, let's say um, when you press it on the left side of space or the right side of space. Mm
2: -hmm. So if
1: you can imagine a visualization here, again, I'm gonna try to paint a picture uh, for those listening on the x-axis, you have the digits one through nine and on the y-axis, what you have is a different score of how fast you responded to that number, depending on whether you were responding with your left hand or your right hand. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And essentially what you find is that people are faster to respond to the number one when they're doing it with their left hand and faster to respond to the digit nine when they're doing it with their right hand. And you get this very smooth, linear effective response times, right? It's not categorical. It's really a linear distribution of response times that will cross the axis at five. So there won't be a difference for five. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just the most beautiful um, effect Mm -hmm. you could ever imagine. It's one of the most well replicated effects in cognitive psychology. And it reveals a very important truth about numerical and spatial representation. That is that numbers can be represented in a spatial format. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I hope uh, those listening are as inspired as I was by that because it really, really changed what I thought was discernible about human behavior, um, especially mm-hmm. from such a simple behavior, behavioral paradigm like that.
0: Do you think that left to right progression is a Western finding since we typically write uh, left to right? Like for example, in other in other languages like Arabic, where you write from right to left, do you think that would be reversed?
1: Yeah, so it is, in fact, reversed. And actually, that's one further reason why I was so intrigued by this. So mm-hmm. um, uh, my father is Arabic. And when I learned math, I learned it from him, you know, and he would write from right to left. And so this idea um, that numbers would be represented left to right, but also maybe right to left was really intriguing to me, because in mm-hmm. my experience with numbers, I kind of learned it both ways, depending on whether my mom or my dad was, was teaching me math. Um, and in fact, that's true. This is one of the classic findings that you would be taught in any basic lecture on this. Um, you can go to cultures that are right from right to left and you do you do see the flip, um, exactly as you said. So it's not as if the mental number line is hardwired into the mind. This left to right idea is not hardwired into the mind. Instead, what seems to be uh, written into the mind is a predisposition to form a mental number line, a predisposition to represent numbers in a spatial way. And then how that's the direction of that line is culturally specific, which is even more mm-hmm. fascinating, in my yeah. opinion, uh, because it speaks to um, well. You have a very clear picture of what hardware is built in, and and what sort of is built on top of that uh, through uh-huh. experience.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. It makes me wonder more broadly how much language is influencing uh, our cognition or spatial cognition. Like, I'm sure, for example, you might have heard that with colors, in some languages there are more primary colors than others. So it's possible that you've grown up in a culture that doesn't have a specific name for, you know, let's say like a a weird shade between colors that we say in English. So we wouldn't have a name for it. We just say, you know, it's like bluish green. Um, And then if if there was a more primary name for it, you'd identify it that way. Do you think that happens for spatial cognition as well, where there are like forms of whether it's with angles or with sizes or anything like that, where there are differences depending on the language you're using?
1: Language no doubt plays an important uh, role here. I would say in the way that I think about how the mind works broadly or about human behavior broadly, there are really two things that are influencing pretty much everything else. One of those is space and one of those is language. And naturally then those two things are influencing each other. I think um, uh, spatial cognition can support language in some ways and I think language can support spatial cognition in some way. The most obvious example of this is a sort of propositional sort of representations of space that I was mentioning a moment ago, um, that, that I think depends on language in a pretty uh, foundational way.
0: Mm-hmm. Do we know anything about what that sort of cognition would look like without language, whether that's with humans um, who are, are non-linguistic or whether that's with animals?
1: You know, I actually don't know anything off the top of my head. Although as I'm thinking about it now, there are pretty natural ways you could study propositional representations of space um, in, in animals without language. It seems um, like not an obvious question that falls out of uh, the other ways that people have studied propositional representations of space. Uh, but it seems quite possible that someone could study such a thing. I suspect someone has. That's usually my guess. Someone's probably asked that question before, but I actually don't know off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. So I know most of your work is with adults, but you've also done some um, some work uh, looking at children's spatial development, is that right?
1: Uh, that is true.
0: What uh, type of questions are you looking at from a developmental perspective?
1: Well, in general, I'm the sort of cognitive psychologist who thinks that a developmental lens is a pretty necessary part of what we do. Mm-hmm. You have some capacity in adults, um, to me, the very first follow-up question is, were we born that way or does it develop? How does it develop? What does it depend on? And so taking developmental lens is a really important part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the first paper that I published um, was a developmental paper. And um, honestly, it's, it's one of the papers, uh, the coolest papers that I've published, in my opinion. Um, the reason it was so cool is because we had children doing this uh, disorientation tasks. So, so what that means is, um, we would bring children into a room that was symmetrical on all sides. And, um, we would put some cues in the room. So let's say you would have some wall set up in the shape of a rectangle, let's say, and you would have a prize hidden or a prize box in each corner of that rectangle. And what you would do is you would have these kids between three and five years of age, let's say, um, come in and you would close their eyes and you would spin them around and get them a little bit dizzy, not too dizzy, but a little bit dizzy um, so that they lose their sense of space. And what we were asking is what geometric information will children use to find something that's hidden in the space? Um, And because you have a room that's designed to be symmetrical, you can play around with the shape of the walls in the room um, to see what information children will use to guide navigation. Um, and yeah, the paper that we wrote made some specific claims about some specific cues. Uh, but essentially we argued that children um, were a little bit more flexible in sort of what geometric cues um, they would use compared to what some others had thought previously. Um, it just depends on how that spatial information is arranged. Um, but what a fun task to, to spin children around <laughs> and have them uh, yeah. search for toys. Uh, really enjoyed that.
0: Were there age-related differences, say, between the three-year-olds and the five-year-olds?
1: Um, basically, what we were showing is that as young as children could do this task at all, they had the capacity to use a variety of cues. Right?
2: Uh-huh. So when,
1: I'm, when I'm talking about cues, I guess that's a little bit ambiguous. I'll say more. You could imagine that uh, two spatial environments are distinguished only based on some sort of angular information. If you think about transforming a square to a rhombus, for instance, um, you could have walls that are all the same size, um, but the angles between them are different. Um, That's a possibility. You could also have uh, something where the length of all the walls are the same, but they're different distances apart, or they're different lengths, but they're all the same distance apart. There's lots of ways that you can play with the geometric information that's available in the environment. Um, Some previous work has shown that young children essentially Uh, would only rely on distance and direction information until they were older, suggesting that uh, maybe this relied on some access to explicit language processes. Um, But what we showed is that actually even younger children might be a little bit more uh, flexible in the cues that they could use to reorient.
0: Mm -hmm. So rather than looking at developmental questions in the sense of like, you know, here's a specific feature of human cognition. At what point does it develop and how does it change with age? It was more like one of those questions saying, this is something that might be closer to innate if very young children can do it.
1: Well, that's true, but also we were responding to a claim about a developmental trajectory in a way, right? Uh-huh. It's, the idea was that you have this like, basic spatial information, maybe distance and direction, on top of which you can build um, other uh, other rules you know, that depend mm-hmm. on language in some way. And what we were yeah. saying is actually, it may not depend on language in the way that we thought. So we, we were just basically saying they can maybe do everything as early as we tested, but it was in response to this question about what the developmental trajectory is. Um, I do think there's probably some truth to this, by the way, um, mm-hmm. that um, I think distance is really the most primal spatial cue that people will use. Um, and I do think, something like angle or length is going to be a little bit harder for children to understand. It's not clear to me, though, whether that's because of language right. per se or because those are just slightly harder to understand.
0: Uh-huh. Right. Oh, that reminds me of something. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this classic developmental task asking about children, which glass of water contains more. And they're the same volume. One is taller and children typically say that the taller one is bigger even though the fatter one has just as much water inside. Is that very related to um, instead of the length times width times height, the length plus width times height heuristic you were talking about?
1: Actually, I think completely related. Um, One thing people don't realize is that adults make that same mistake children do. We often talk about children making this mistake because children make the mistake in a conservation task. So you see the water poured from one cup to another. And even Uh though they saw the transformation, they'll still say that the taller one has more. Mm -hmm. Um, in that case, it's a failure to understand that nothing has fundamentally changed about the water. Right. Right. Um, but if you don't do that and you just show adults, the two glasses, they'll make the exact same mistake as children. They'll think that the taller one um, has more. And yes, I do think that's absolutely related to this heuristic. Mm -hmm. We were saying above actually in one of our papers, um, I think the one where we talk about this volume heuristic, um, I believe we open the paper, the opening paragraph is about that example. And we say this exactly that I just said, which is that actually adults make the same mistake too, and uh-huh. people don't realize. Uh, so, so good connection.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I didn't know that it was limited to just the conservation error. I didn't know that adults would make that mistake too.
1: Well, you'll see this happen actually at a lot of like sporting events. As beers become more expensive, they have to trick consumers <laughs> into thinking that it's worth the price. And so you'll notice a trend, seriously, um, towards taller, thinner glasses. And um, it, it's quite funny when you, when you realize what's going on. Uh, yeah.
0: Wow. Cool. So I'd like to take a step back from spatial cognition and ask you about some of your more recent work on teleology and explanation. How did you get into that?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, uh, in a very un- un- uh, unconventional way. So I was teaching a class um, on uh, developmental cognitive psychology, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was a student in that class who... Uh, every every student in the class had to write a term paper on something. They had to basically propose a research project. And the paper would be like a normal journal paper, except they wouldn't collect the data. They would just speculate about what the data would be. And um, I met in that class a really... A uh, talented student who was a philosophy major her name is sarah jew and um she was required to meet with me several times throughout the semester to discuss her project and she met with me and she said i'm really interested in teleology and she told me about work that i didn't know about at the time but basically yeah. there's some work and We suggesting should define that, that
0: for listeners teleology. oh yeah okay yeah i'll
1: do that in a sec um, so it's, it, it's appropriate that I wouldn't define it because when Sarah came into my office and started talking about teleology, I didn't know what she was talking about. This was an unfamiliar term <laughs> to me, but it's, it's a complicated word for a very simple thing. Teleology refers to the purposes of things. So we could think about, um, you know, a microwave, the teleology of a microwave is to warm up food. Or we think about a hammer, the teleology of a hammer is to, uh, hammer nails, to drive in nails. Um, So teleology just refers to function. Um, So Sarah was talking to me about teleology, but the reason she cared about teleology is because she told me about some work that argued that children have an intuitive belief in God, that you come into the world predisposed to believe in God or gods, that that the world was designed intelligently in some way. And um, I remember Sarah telling me, I think that's wrong, but I don't know why. And I want to figure it out. And um, teleology was part of figuring that out. So in a nutshell here, I'll just say what the argument is. The argument is that children like explanations that are teleological. So imagine that you're walking through a forest with a kid and a kid says, you know, like, why is the forest the way that it is? You can imagine saying something like, well, the forest is the way that it is so that we can um, go on, long walks together and talk, something like this. Um, That's a teleological answer because it's explaining why the forest forest is the way that it is by appeal to the purpose of the forest, the purpose being to go on long walks together. The trouble is um, that to many philosophers and psychologists who study explanation, that teleological explanation is wrong, it's irrational, it's unscientific. And the reason that a teleological explanation, one that appeals to function is unscientific is because something can't be explained by a function that arose by virtue of its being, right? Um, You can't say that, um, you know, I am here in this world to make the world a better place because it's not making the world a better place that caused me to be, it's a much more proximal mechanistic explanation. Um, And when people do endorse those sorts of explanations, the idea is that the only way you would say that the forest exists for some purpose is if you think some god or gods made it that way or some other there's some other aspect of intelligent design and so Mm -hmm. the idea was in a nutshell children are endorsing teleological explanations and that means that they must think that the world is explained by someone some entity who designed it uh to have those purposes that was the gist of the idea um sarah thought that was wrong um she needed to catch me up on the terminology but we agreed that maybe there was something more to discover there and uh so we studied it. So we've been working together for four years now. She's published a few papers now on this topic. And uh, four years later, I can say that I think we were roughly right that there was something wrong with that argument, but not in a deflationary way. It turns out to be much more interesting than we ever anticipated it would be.
0: That's very interesting. So, yeah, let's let's talk about the findings then. How did you disprove it or what, what um, did you find instead?
1: Well, essentially we came to realize that this area of study may have less to do with explanation or explanation preferences and have more to do with how people understand the questions that precede explanations. So here's what I mean by that. Um, Before I ask this question about the forest, you know, the kid asks, why is the forest the way that it is? Um, And typically, when folks have studied explanation, they assume that that why question is a query for an explanation. An explanation in the formal philosophical sense. Um, so so one that is not teleological, in other words. Um, what Sarah and I have argued is that why questions like that one are actually um, semantically ambiguous. So when I say, why is the forest the way that it is, that could be rephrased in the following way. How did the forest come to be this way? For instance, a how question that how question is one that's seeking mechanistic information, but it could also be rephrased in a totally different way as a purpose question. What is the purpose of the forest being the way that it is? And these are both totally natural ways to reframe the question. Why is the forest the way that it is? And we use both interpretations of why questions all the time. Essentially what Sarah and I argued is that it's not that people have teleological explanation preferences in certain domains. It's that they think sometimes that when someone's asking a why question, they're specifically seeking information about purpose. In other words, it should be rephrased as a purpose question. And sometimes I think it should be rephrased as a how question. So um, here's an example. Um, think about like, this is kind of like a kid-friendly version, but we're often studying this in kids. So we have kid-friendly stimuli on our mind. But if you ask like, why did the mountains become so pointy? you assume that they mean, how did the mountains become pointy? Because you know that the mountains weren't designed for a reason. And both adults and children tend to realize that the person asking that why question probably was meaning to ask a how question. But if you say, why is the microwave the way that it is? Nobody thinks that's a how question. Everybody interprets that as a purpose question. You would rephrase it in the form, what is the purpose of the microwave being the way that it is? So in adults, we study this in a variety of ways. One thing is we just ask them like, hey, here's a why question. What do you think the person asking this really meant? Just tell us, what do you think the person asking this really meant? In kids, we have to change how we ask the questions. We have to basically give them the options to choose from. But basically, both adults and children have specific expe- expectations about which form of the why question someone's meaning to ask. And those expectations they have about what the question asker was meaning to ask perfectly map onto the explanation preferences that they have. In other words, this is a lot of information that I'm covering at once, but in other words, when children are endorsing teleological explanations, it's not because they think that teleological explanation was trying to explain the way the forest is the way that it is. It's because they were looking for information about purpose in the first place. And they understand that when people are asking certain why questions, they're not asking for a formal explanation in the philosophical sense. They're only seeking information about purposes. More generally, I think people are obsessed with purpose. You want to know what the purpose Mm -hmm. of the microwave is. You want to know what the purpose of the forest is. You want to know what the purpose of you is. Um, But I don't think that the fact that we're attuned to information about purposes then translates into us having an intuitive belief in God.
0: Mm -hmm. So are these two questions, the how did something come to be and the what is its purpose? Are those two forms of teleological explanation? Or is it that teleology only has to do with purpose and then the how is just like, a different scientific question.
1: Yeah. It's, it's not teleology in that case. So basically there's a very straightforward bifurcation here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why is the most general question that we could ask about anything. Um, and then that can be broken down into two kinds of question, a how question or a purpose question, mm-hmm. a little bit of an aside here in English. We don't use this word very often, but the equivalent of how would actually be wherefore. Wherefore is seeking information about purpose, but. Um, okay. These days we tend to actually just use why instead as a substitute, although that gets confusing here because why I could refer to how as well. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, there's a how question and a purpose question. How questions are often queries for mechanistic explanations and purpose questions are often queries for teleological information, not necessarily mm-hmm. teleological explanations but teleological information. So how maps on to mechanism and purpose maps on to teleology in a very straightforward way. And what we've suggested is that this broader why question really has two components. And there's the bifurcation between mechanism and teleology um, is, is pretty fundamental. For anything you could think about, you can explain it by appeal to what happened before, You know what led to that happening, or you could explain it by appeal to what happened afterwards. If you're trying to explain someone's ordinary behavior, why did Adam go to the fridge? You might say that Adam went to the fridge because uh, Sammy told him to. That would be a sort of mechanistic explanation. Or you could say Adam went to the fridge so that he could retrieve some orange juice. And that would be a teleological explanation. So these are sort of diametrically opposed uh, types of answers that you can give. And both are contained within the broader umbrella why question. That's the Uh idea. anyway.
0: Right. So it sounds like the how questions are the very scientific type questions and that there's a necessarily subjective element to this idea of purpose.
1: Um, I think that's true. I mean, definitely when philosophers are talking about explanation, mostly what they care about is mechanism how, in a very rigorous way. Um, whereas there's a little bit more debate about whether teleology can count as explanation. There's more detail than we can cover here, but sometimes teleology can be explanatory and sometimes it can't. Um, teleology can be subjective in many ways. You know, you and I might disagree about like what our purpose on this earth is. But in many cases, we would really agree on it, right? Like, we all know what the purpose of a microwave is. We all know what the purpose of a car is. In many ways, our functioning as a society depends on us agreeing on the functions of things. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think teleology is obviously subjective. Some, you know, a hammer could be for decoration if we wanted it to be. But I think there's a lot of agreement about what things are for. And really, I think our society depends on that agreement. Mm
0: -hmm. So when you're when you're looking at things through an evolutionary perspective, which Route would you take? So let's say we're asking the question: What is the purpose of having these teleological beliefs? Is that you could you could say that the purpose is to, um, you know, allow us to navigate the world in, in with some adaptive manner. So maybe if we think there's a purpose to things, we're more optimistic and we're more likely to carry on living and surviving and propagating our genes. But then that survival question, that survival explanation, seems to be more like a how just fra- framed in the in the purpose
1: yeah so this is like a meta teleological question I like that um, I think it's not that we are drawn at least in terms of what we care about it's not so much that we're drawn to um, teleology in the sense that we want to know what our purpose is I think the way in which we're drawn to teleology is that, Um, we want to know how to relate to the world. So there's an idea called the relational theactic view of teleology, and it's very straightforward. All that it means is that you want to know what the tree is for so you know how to interact with that tree. If the tree is for providing you food, then you know that you should interact with the tree in a way that provides you food. Um, And you can think about not just the teleology of the tree relative to you, but to a squirrel, the purpose of the tree might be to provide a home in some way. so I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think what teleology is for, is to give us a sense of how we should relate to the world. And again, imagine a parent saying something teleological to the child. We kind of hear that statement. It's so that we can go on long walks together and enjoy spending time together. Um, it's sort of a statement about how the kid ought to view the forest or what the kid ought to care about um, in terms of how to relate to the forest. Um, and I think it's important again, like as a society that we're coordinated about how we think we should relate to things. And that's where I think teleology is, is functional.
0: Yeah. I, I see a very interesting dichotomy here, which is that you could keep asking these either these how questions or these why purpose, why questions all the way down. And it seems like you're going to get the opposite answer depending on which, where you start and, and how like metaphysical your orientation is. So for example, If you keep asking how questions about the natural world, eventually you're going to get to natural laws. And depending on your metaphysical beliefs of how those natural laws came to be, you might get something that's more purpose-oriented, or you might just say they just are. And then if you keep asking questions about uh, what is the purpose of this, eventually you're going to get towards some reductionist explanation, uh, something explained by natural laws, like we evolved in this manner and eventually started seeking purposes. And you're going to also get back to the whole, okay, there's the natural laws that led us to evolve here. And those either came into being, or they just are.
1: I think you're right that basically, the way I think about it is like, there's the present tense now, or there's the Mm -hmm. present scale, whatever, however you want to think about that. And with mechanism, you could keep asking how questions all the way down to particles that we've not even discovered yet. Eventually, those answers would become pretty meaningless to us in in our lives. um, But you could keep asking mechanism all the way down. Purpose is the opposite. You could keep asking purpose all the way up. And the further you go up with purpose, you kind of eventually get to something that's rather cosmic, right? It it, Mm -hmm. it keeps getting larger. Um, One way or another, these things both circle around to something that's Mm -hmm. either very grand in scale or very, very small in scale. But I think in general, when we're talking about the dichotomy between mechanism and teleology, these things are going in opposite directions. Mechanism is often sort of past oriented teleology is more forward oriented mechanism is often looking at things on a smaller scale teleology is looking at things on a bigger scale. And that's why I think it's so interesting that both of those things are being queried by the same ambiguous why question. Mm -hmm. These are very, very different kinds of information. And a misunderstanding about that, I think is really been a big part of all the scientific literature on, on the study of explanation for the past 20 years, where Sarah's work, I think is really provocative in my opinion, Mm-hmm. Is that it really highlights how significant this dichotomy is, and how funny it is that this dichotomy is contained within the single word "why"?
0: Uh huh. Yeah, this was a great rabbit hole to go down. So, moving forward in in your future work, are you gonna be more focused on this this teleological explanation side? Or are you gonna continue doing work on spatial cognition? Are you gonna combine them in some way?
1: Well, it's a great question. Um, my career has been unconventional, I would say, and that I work on a rather broad range of topics. We have talked about two of them here today, but mm-hmm. as, as you will know, Adam, it actually extends far beyond those two. Um, I hope to work on all of those things and more. Um, my view is that science needs all kinds of people. It needs people that hyper-specialize in one area of study, and it needs people that are a bit more general, Uh, My hope is that the right thing for my career is to play to my strengths. And my strengths, I think, are um, uh, trying to be creative, trying to bring ideas from one area of study into another. Um, And uh, I don't know where that will lead me. I also like to be inspired by ideas that students bring, you know, so it's not always just me leading the way. It's me listening to the other people that are around me. Um, Sarah's work is an excellent example of that. I didn't know what teleology was four years ago. And now we've got you know, several papers on that that are really an important part of how I think about human cognition these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so listening to students, um, trying to bring my own creativity um, and sort of cross-disciplinary expertise to projects is, is a big part of what I want to do. Um, and I don't know where that will take me. That's part of the fun of the career as I see it. I mean, I don't know if that's a good career strategy, um, <laughs> but it's what makes me happy.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great perspective on science in my view. Thank you so much for your time, Sammy.
1: Yeah, thank you. This was great.